Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the only association for those with a professional interest in neuromarketing. Visit www.nmsba.com for events and membership details. And Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Email pmcgee at decisionbreakers.com to see how they can help you win your war in-store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and I'm speaking today with Ryan Hamilton, Associate Professor of Marketing at Emory University's Gozueta Business School in Atlanta, Georgia. Ryan, together with his colleague, Uma Carmarker, Assistant Professor at UC San Diego, authored a paper titled, The Four Minds of the Customer, a Framework for Understanding and Applying the Science of Decision-Making, which won the Best Paper Award by the Marketing Science Institute. It addresses the unfortunate reality of decision science that not all consumers use the same decision strategy when evaluating options. In fact, even the same consumers use different or multiple or even conflicting decision strategies depending on the context. This may not be a surprise for many, but rather than ignoring this reality because it's too complicated, Ryan and Uma reviewed 50 years of research on judgment and decision-making to develop a framework that can help marketers know which decision strategy is being used by their customers and in turn, better market and serve them. But before we begin, Ryan, welcome to Shoppernomics. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk through this. Terrific. And uh, you know, coincidentally, NPR had a story last week about Ryan Hamilton, the comedian. I, I assume that's a different Ryan Hamilton? It is. Bizarrely, though, I know him, and we went to college together. No way. It's very strange. Anytime you think you are a unique and beautiful snowflake in the universe, <laughs> yeah. you're wrong. There's somebody else out there who's stealing your name. Wow. And more famous. <laughs> wow. Well, apparently, he's, he's quite a successful comedian, and, and, um, and, and the thing that they focused on was the fact that he was, um, he was a clean comedian. I think they call yes. he, he's blue. Um, I think that's the term. In blue blue is when you're not clean. Blue is uh, blue is when you're not. He's not blue. He's anti-blue. Oh, he's, he's anti Oh, got it, got it. Oh, I, I got them mixed up. But um, well, apparently he is what was described as the greatest comedian's greatest comedian. He's he's fantastic. Uh, I recommend him wholeheartedly. He's got a Netflix special. He's also like the nicest guy in the world. So you could feel good about liking him. So, uh, so back to you, other than not being a comedian, is there anything else you'd like listeners to know about you before we jump into today's topic? Uh, well, I mean, kind of leading into where we're going with this paper, I'm, I'm an academic, uh, so I'm, I'm a marketing research academic. I, I teach, uh, I occasionally do consulting, so I, I exist in kind of multiple worlds at the same time where we we're very much interested in, in kind of the, the theory and publishing academic papers. But then we also interface with, with real hard-nosed MBA students in, in my teaching um, and then also occasionally consult with uh, clients who have real problems that need to get solved. And, and it was kind of this, this nexus of all of these professional interests that led to the paper that we will talk about today. Terrific. And, and this is also kind of interesting because now you're going to be on the other side of the microphone, right? Because you have your own yes. podcast called Intuitive Customer I um, do. on the topic of customer experience. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so I, I wrote a book called The Intuitive Customer uh, with a consultant named, named Colin Shaw, uh, and we got along uh, really well. He's, he's British, and so he sounds very sophisticated when he speaks. Um, I, I like to, you know, drop my credentials anytime anybody disagrees with me. So we just have lots of, uh, roiling, uh, conversations about, uh, customer psychology and, um, behavioral economics, uh, and then kind of how it can be applied and, and how people can actually do something with it. That's terrific. How long have you been doing that, Ryan? Uh, just over a year. We started, um, beginning of last year. So, uh, oh gosh, we're, it's already, we're already past the new year. So I'll close to a year and a half at this point. Yeah. Terrific. Congratulations. And I'll definitely add that to my list. I, I assume I can get that on iTunes. Uh, anywhere free podcasts are sold. Very good. So, um, so first off, congratulations on winning MSI's best paper award. Um, that's quite an accomplishment given the number of papers they review. Um, Thank you. Curious whether you and Uma have to share the million dollar prize. <laughs> we we did split the zero dollar cash prize. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, I'm I'm sure that you've uh, got that displayed loud and proud on your CV. It um it was a real surprise because as as we'll talk about when we get to the paper, this was not a typical academic paper. the The Marketing Science Institute is a unique organization in that they try to serve as an interface between us weird academics um, and practitioners who actually have real problems. And, um, and they do a very good job with that very difficult task. Um, and so mostly these best paper awards go to kind of typical academic papers that still have real world application. Yeah. Um, as we'll talk about uh, soon, soon, I assume that the paper that we wrote was very different and was kind of an awkward fit. And uh, I wrote Kay Lemon, who was the MSI director at the time, mm -hmm. a big thank you note for supporting Uma and I in this weird task that we tried. <laughs> well, I'm a, I've, I'm a huge fan of MSI. I was an a MSI trustee for many years, and, uh, and you know, I'm, very, I'm as passionate as they are about their cause. And in fact, that's what we try to do here on Shoppernomics, which is to kind of bridge that same gap between academic and practitioner. Um, there's, and, there's so much need for that gap to be bridged. And well, there's well, so few people doing it. And I'm so grateful to those that are. Yeah, um, myself as well. And um, you know, most of that, that gap bridging is really in the scope of um, social policy, which is mm -hmm. you know, very important. Um, but when it comes to you know consumer packaged goods marketing, um, it's it gets harder and harder to find to find gap closers. So um, yeah, so that's what I'm all about. All right, so um, well then let's get to your paper. And to get started, what's the background for the paper? I'm, I'm curious what inspired you to take on this topic. Sure. So the motivation was pretty straightforward. Uh, I you know I, I live and breathe in this uh, academic theory rich decision making space. So I'm I'm really passionate about figuring out why people make decisions in the ways that they do. What's the theory of human decision-making? I find it endlessly fascinating. Um, I also though, you know, need to teach this stuff and then occasionally consult on this stuff. People are also interested in this out in the real world. And after doing this for a while, I, it was this gap that we just talked about that I recognized. There's this huge gap between the theory, which can be kind of elegant and surprising and, and interesting, and then the practical application of it. And, and there are various ways that people have tried to bridge this. What I started with and, and, and where Uma and I started working on this was 
I was motivated by the boundaries between theories. So this is something that is, um, if, if you work in this space as an academic, as a theory-driven researcher, this is second nature to you. Everybody understands implicitly that all theories have their boundary, um, that they, they apply under a certain set of circumstances, and if we go outside of those boundaries of that theory, then the theory doesn't apply as well, or other theories just become much stronger. They're much better predictors in these other domains, even if the original theory that we're talking about still is kind of there, it gets swamped by other effects. So if you run experiments, if you, um, you know, research theory, this is all second nature to you. You learn this in your second year of your PhD program, uh, and it's all just very straightforward. It's just, it's so ingrained in the way that academics think, mm -hmm. we don't ever bother to talk about it. We don't bother to, to clue in other people who haven't had this same training, who are, who are interested in this stuff and, and wanting to apply it. Um, and, and we kind of like poo-poo the whole thing. Well, yeah, yeah, no, of course, of course this theory doesn't hold in that domain. Like, well, but nobody told anybody it doesn't hold in that <laughs> domain. So they very reasonably assumed that it did. Um, and, and when I talk to, to practitioners who, you know, read predictably irrational or nudge or thinking fast and slow, who are interested in this stuff, it, it's most often the case that they get very frustrated when they've tried to apply it because they'll do what they read in these books and it won't work or it'll backfire or it won't work very well. And from my perspective, a lot of the reason that it doesn't work well is because nobody's bothered to articulate those boundaries. Mm -hmm. So they first ask yourself, is this the appropriate domain for this theory to hold? And if it is, great. And if it's not, don't do it. Do something else instead. Right. Right. And, um, you know, before I started this call, you and I were talking uh, and we talked about the, the Campbell's Retail Lab. Um, mm -hmm. and, big um, I'm and, a big fan. And, and, and as, you told, as I told you, I was you know, there from the beginning on, on the retail lab. And, uh, and that was really the purpose of it because you know, the, the two words I'm going to say more often than anything else is context matters. Yes. And, and in the context of, of my category, um, with my pricing and my target consumers, I can't just expect that these principles of behavioral economics are going to just immediately transfer um, to those other contexts. And so testing just becomes critically important. And, um, but you know, testing in the real world can be prohibitively expensive, especially if you want to do lots of different iterations or if you need to do lots of different iterations. And yep. so having you know, a, a kind of a, a quick and dirty, as, as it was in our case, retail lab, um, just to kind of cycle your way through a lot of hypotheses and, uh, and contextual variations to see how can I make this work for me if I can make it work for me. I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. I mean, we're, we're completely out of line on this. Uh, the way that I phrase this typically is, is behavioral economics or, or consumer psychology or psychology in general doesn't work in general. Behavioral economics does not work in general. Mm -hmm. It works in specific. So you need to know exactly what that context is in order to know what you should apply. And academics are not motivated by the same set of concerns. We want theories that are as general as we can make them. Uh, and so 
what does that mean for Campbell's Soup in this specific set of instances? You're not going to get an academic who's going to be motivated to answer that question for you because we can't publish a paper on that. Mm, yes. Um, we need something more, more general than that. You as a brand manager at, at Campbell's Soup or wherever you know, your listeners are you know, working in these fields, those specific instances are extremely important. They need to know exactly does this work in my specific instance because that's how you'll know like where to go with it. Exactly, yeah, exactly. right. Exactly right. Well, thank, yeah, thanks for that. And, and by the way, I'm hoping my next podcast topic will be on academic practitioner partnerships. We'll talk about the need and the frustrations about, about that. Um, okay, so your paper is on the four minds of the customer, and, and it was based on, you know, 50 years of research on judgment and decision making. Uh, so let's, let's start by talking about those. What are these four minds? How do they work? What, what do we need to know about them? Excellent. So I'll walk you through all four of them. Uh, right. The way that we got to these four was essentially by focusing on these boundaries. Essentially, what we, we wanted to say is, there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of specific theories that are out there in decision making. We don't cover them all by any means. But what we tried to look for was commonalities of boundary. So w within these kind of broad set of contexts, what are the theories that would be most applicable here? Um, if, if you're in this other context over here, oh, all right, we've got a different kind of class of theories right. to work through. So um, with that in mind, let me walk you through all four of them. Um, the way that I'll describe them is uh, by using kind of an archetypal decision um, that somebody might make in this mind. That doesn't Perfect. mean everybody who, who makes this type of decision is making it in that way. Not the case at all. But this is kind of an, an archetype, a prototype. It'll give you an idea. Great. So the four minds are ideal point, market comparison, local comparison, and image. So we'll walk through all four of those. So starting with ideal point, ideal point ha decisions happen when customers know exactly what they want. Uh, and they make their decision by comparing each option they encounter to this reference ideal that exists in their mind. So that my archetypal decision for this is buying a dream home. So if you've been thinking about, you know, your dream house for a long time, you may have an archetype, you may have a, a, a dream house that exists in your brain that may or may not exist anywhere in the real world. Uh, and when you're looking for that house and you're out searching, what you do is each house you visit, each house you look at, you're comparing that house to your ideal point. Mm -hmm. And the one that's closest to that ideal house is the one that you'll end up buying. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So I think that there are uh, lots of different examples of this uh, that happen out there. Um, but, but think about what needs to be true in order for that to be the case, right? So you need to be fairly well-versed in the, the subject, very well-versed in the category, uh, maybe some experience there. Um, you have to give it a lot of thought about what you want and lots of dimensions. The class of theories that fit into this ideal point uh, are what's known as subjective utility models. So uh, a lot of the decision-making theory that comes out of economics assumes ideal points exist and assumes that that's the way people make decisions, is by maximizing their utility, by getting options that are as close to that ideal point as possible. Right. Good? Yep. Okay. All right, so that's one mind, this ideal point 
comparison line. The next one is market comparison. And that's, that bears some similarities. The idea here is that um, we, we're going to compare options that we evaluate relative to some reference standard. But in this case, instead of the standard being our own subjective perceptions of what would be kind of perfect in that category, mm -hmm. now we're relying on the market to inform us what is acceptable in this category. Right. So instead of... of uh, one of the differences between ideal points and market comparison is I think ideal points tend to be um, defined on more dimensions, whereas market comparisons, usually we're looking at one or two key dimensions that people are evaluating things on. Mm -hmm. So um, the theories that we would draw on there are, are, are any reference point models, prospect theory, if you're familiar with that, that would be yes. a market comparison line. And my, my prototypical decision-making example here would be digital cameras. And particularly digital cameras in like the the early 2000s when they were kind of a new product category. Right. So the way that people evaluated pro uh, digital cameras in, in that era was overwhelmingly based on megapixels. So that's how we knew whether the camera was good or not, was whether it had the, the kind of going rate of megapixels that was popular. Interestingly, in my own opinion, most people have no idea what megapixels are. Uh, they don't realize that the primary benefit of megapixels is so you can blow the picture up to like poster size, as we all often do and need that. But instead, it, it became this very easy metric. Everybody was competing on, on megapixels. We knew uh, what the going rate for megapixels was, how, how big, like that would determine how good the camera was. And so that became the primary metric. And then we would decide kind of within that metric on some other thing. Good? Yep. Makes perfect right. sense. Uh, I think uh, for me, buying a, a TV uh, is a market comparison decision, right? I, I don't know how big TVs are nowadays. It seems to change a lot. I don't know what resolution they should be. Uh, but it, I can go out and very quickly do some research, figure that stuff out, and then those become my reference points for evaluating everything I'm looking at. Got it. All right. Um, local comparison is the next mindset. Here, we're comparing things within some narrowly defined local set. So it could be the options on the store shelf. Mm -hmm. so if, you, if your toaster breaks and you want a new toaster and you walk into Target, it kind of doesn't matter what the set of toasters is in the world. It kind of doesn't matter what your ideal toaster is if you have one. Your universe exists within the store shelf there at Target. You're gonna walk out with one of those options it's just a matter of comparing what's there and, and making your choice accordingly. The prototypical decision there is choosing a, a dessert off of a dessert menu, right? You know, you've decided you're going to have dessert at this restaurant. You're going to now look through the options that are available, and you're going to pick one of those options that kind of best meets your needs. It doesn't matter if you've got an ideal dessert that could be available somewhere else. If that's not there, you know, you're just going to choose the best that you've got. So the theories that use a local comparison mind are a lot of our behavioral economics theories that people uh, context effects, framing effects, reason-based choice, uh, anything you read about in nudge or um, that's not true. I don't want to undersell nudge. It's very <laughs> a lot of the things you read about in nudge, a lot of things you read about in predictably irrational and, and thinking fast and slow apply to a local comparison mind. Good. Yeah, this is, um, you know, the, the, phrase from Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, you know, what you see is all there is 
uh, bias, which you know leads, uh, or rather is is the reason why all of these effects work particularly well in a retail environment where you know it's all about the local comparison. Sure, people come in with reference prices, and and people under you know have some understanding of the, of the market, and they've got their ideal point, um, you know, all those things to some extent. But you know, at the end of the day, when you're standing two feet in front of the shelf, then the local comparison um, really becomes you know of primary importance. I would argue, at least with fast moving goods, and um, and then you know people fall into the trap of what you see is all there is, and then you know all these biases play out. Exactly so. And Kahneman obviously said that before I developed this framework. But we'll pretend that he was endorsing this part of my framework when he said it. Uh, <laughs> I think that that's exactly how it applies. So, um, yeah, and honestly, like this, um, part of what motivated me to, to write this paper and to think about it in this way was people trying to overapply hmm. behavioral economic stuff. Mm -hmm. So they would say, oh, well, you know, the attraction effect or the compromise effect, those are really powerful. I'm going to do that here. And they were trying to apply it in a context where they didn't control the local context. Uh -huh. So you can try to introduce a super premium option so that people will go to your option as the, you know, you can introduce a super premium toaster so that that should increase the attractiveness of your moderately priced toaster. Right. You know, that's, that's a compromise effect. That's extremist aversion. That's good. Mm-hmm. But if you're selling on the store shelf at Target and Target is the one who gets to decide the composition of the shelf <laughs> space, then, you know, maybe that's not the best strategy for you. And maybe you are, are outside of that, dom that context, that domain of theories that you can control. Yes. And, and, you know, even subtle things like, you know, Target may have the exact assortment you could ideally want to uh, kind of encourage that effect. But instead of ordering them from lowest price to highest price, they instead, for some reason, yep. order them from highest price to lowest price, and then the whole thing blows up. I, I mean, the, the, the attention to detail that is required to apply some of these behavioral economics principles, I mean, behavioral economics is in part so cool because such tiny things, irrelevant things, can lead to large changes in, in outcome, right. which we all look at and go, oh, that's amazing. I can change three words in my advertising and sales are going to double. Um, yes, maybe it's also true, you know, exactly the point you're making, which is this cuts both ways, right? Mm -hmm. so, so little tiny changes can also make the whole thing fall apart or can lead to a different outcome. So the fourth mind, the last one that we'll talk about is the image mind. And the idea here is that sometimes we make as consumers, we make decisions that are not based on a full rational evaluation of all of the attributes and attribute values. Instead, we rely on images. These could be brand images, uh, price images, health images for foods that we're choosing. Uh, and, and we realize the theory there is, is one of impression formation and halo effects, okay. uh, where we assume that this must be a high quality offering because the brand is high quality. And so it's gonna perform well on all of the individual attributes. Sure. So my, my prototypical example there is um, choosing a bottled water. Um, one of the more reliable effects in marketing research is the fact that people are terrible at being able to identify their favorite product if it's in a blind taste test. Mm -hmm. As much as you swear up and down that your particular brand of bottled water tastes better, <laughs> uh, I would put money on it uh, if we strip it out of the bottle 
uh, and had you tasted along with others, you would not be able to come. So this is very much an image-based decision, um, you know, not taking anything away from the power of, of those images, but that's what we're basing our decision on. Is yeah. That it makes us feel and, healthier, feel better, feel smarter, or whatever it is. And, and bottled water is just a, a, such a great example of that. Because you're right. I mean, the the price range of bottled water is, yes. is I mean, magnitudes of dollars. It's, it's extraordinary. So, um, so I'm curious because, you know, after, after kind of reading and then absorbing these four minds, um, I, I wondered if there was a fifth mind. Uh, Interesting. Some, something, you know, maybe relating to the effect of social influence. Um, you know, if I'm shopping with someone and, and maybe I go into the store with my ideal point, um, but then I notice there is a display that I see a lot of people shopping from, um, yes. which, which just kind of undermines my own mental model. Um, and then, you know, makes me kind of, kind of go over to this, this other area of social and be influenced by social influence. I didn't know whether or not that was maybe related to the image mind or one of the other minds or, or something else. I'm, I'm so glad you raised it as a question because this is something that, um, I, I want to, to talk through for anybody who's interested in using this framework to kind of help them make decisions. Okay. Um, I agree with your intuition. I think that social influences would fit most closely into an image mind. So the idea is that um, if lots of other people are doing it, it must be pretty good. That, that's a pretty image type way of making a decision. Sure. Um, popularity signals something else. Yep. But more specifically to the point, uh, social influence is not the only thing you'll be able to come up with that doesn't fit cleanly into one of these four categories. Okay. Uh, I think social influence is closer than some other things we could think about. Mm -hmm. But Uma and I were not trying to, nor would it be possible for us to come up with kind of an overarching framework of all decision making and all influences. Um, I think that if we if we tried, it would start to lose some of its cohesiveness and usefulness. Uh, so just as, as we were motivated by the boundaries between theories when we came up with the framework, yeah. I think there are boundaries around the framework uh, within which it would <laughs> stop being useful for mm. people. So as people think about this, um, if they come up with things that, well, I'm not really sure how that fits into this framework, there's a good chance you're right. Uh, okay. There's a good chance that it wouldn't. You know, social influence is so persuasive. It's such a powerful influencer. Right. I'm comfortable with the idea that there are these very powerful influences on decision making that don't fit into the framework precisely. Mm -hmm. um, I don't find that idea threatening. This is intended to be a tool. I hope it's useful. Um, if, if what you're looking at specifically, this is the wrong tool for, mm -hmm. set it aside. Look at it from a different perspective. Okay, so, so this question will be very uncomfortable for an academic, but I got to ask it anyway. Um, <laughs> Good. If, if I'm a listener, I'm thinking to myself right now, okay, well, you know, what percent of decision strategies are going to fall within this framework? Is that, is that possible to kind of offer a very, very rough estimate if you had to come up with one? I don't know. Uh, that's, that's my rough estimate. Uh, and as an academic, I'm very comfortable admitting that I don't know. Okay. Uh, so. All right. So the, but it, the nature of the question is a very good one and one that I would encourage people to look at. I mean, the short answer is I think that it would vary so much by product category, by uh, customer segment, that even if I were to give you some kind of rough estimate, 
it it wouldn't be useful enough to do much good. Okay. Um, here's where I like the point. question though. It in terms of what you can do with this, um, it, one of the ways that you could try to implement um, this framework to help you understand people is say you've done your segmentation, say that you've got your target customer that you were trying to serve. You could go out and try to figure out what percentage of my target segment is making decisions in these different ways. So we can talk through next about kind of what are the characteristics of the, the person and of the decision context that would lead people to be more or less likely to use these four. Mm -hmm. but, but I think that the, this question about, you know, what percentage of people are using each of these broadly doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense, but right. more specifically, you know, in my category, are people more likely to be making decisions in one of these ways? With my target segment, are people more likely to be making decisions in one of these ways? That I think could potentially be useful for people. Makes perfect sense. And and it's a it is a very, you know, uh, and I mean this in the best of ways, it's a very simple framework, um, easy to easy to to use, easy easy to conceptually grasp, and and if nothing else, a really good starting point. And you know, hey, if your category fits nice and neatly into it, then then you're good to go. Uh, and if not, then maybe you just have a little bit more work to do, but at least you know where it maybe doesn't apply. Uh, yes, I, I, I would agree with that completely. And I see this too as a starting point. Yeah. Um, okay, good. You know, it, as you're swimming in this ocean of theory <laughs> um, and just drowning in it, yes. like this is a way to kind of carve that down into something that's a little bit more manageable as a place to start. And th this will not point you to a, a an ultimate solution for whatever problem you have. Right. Uh, but hopefully it'll point you in the right direction. Well, I mean, you know, fair point. You read you read any of those books that you mentioned before, and you are left frustrated, saying, "I want to, I want to make use of this stuff, but it, I, I don't even know where to begin." And so, yeah. what you're offering is a starting point. So I love that. Um, okay, so you've described each of the four minds, um, and you've given some prototypical uh, categories where they apply. But there are some circumstances in which consumers may use these four minds. Can you can you offer some examples? Sure. So one of the ways of, of starting, so first of all, my, my caveat, um, all of these minds exist within all of us, right? So mm -hmm. we all use all four of these minds to make decisions in different settings or, or for different things. Um, it may also be that certain people kind of default to one mind predominantly. So mm -hmm. I may be um, an ideal point person a lot of the time. Like I just, I, I think very deeply about these particular, about a lot of the decisions I make, or I may be an image mind person most of the time, but there is that flexibility. It's not that we can categorize somebody as absolutely this type of person all the time. Um, we're all, all of these things. Okay. That in mind, we can start to predict where these things will be important. So let's, let's walk through the four again, very briefly. Um, we can, we can categorize these in terms of effort. So, um, and, and with effort, we can also then anticipate how much effort people are going to, to devote to these things based on things like how important is it to them, um, how much time and F and how much time do they have to devote to this? Um, you know, are they constrained in terms of distractions, other kinds of things? So ideal point is the most effortful way of making a decision. Um, you should anticipate that that's only going to happen when it's an important decision or for people, um, when they care about it a lot, when they have time to devote to it, when they're experienced. So if none of these things apply to what you're selling, mm -hmm. 
ideal point, not the right set of theories for you. Um, now I should point out this is going to correlate a lot with um, uh, kind of price. Obviously, the more the higher ticket items, people tend mm-hmm. to devote more time and resources. Sure. But not exclusively. I, I use this example in class sometimes. I care more about mustard than any reasonable person should. Um, I experiment a lot with mustards. I will buy more. Mu- I have a lot of mustard in my fridge. I have unopened mustards in my pantry. Um, it's, you know, it's threatened by marriage at various points, how much I care about mustard. So <laughs> I, embarrassing as it is to admit on, <laughs> on a podcast, I am probably an ideal point customer when it comes to mustard, which is not an expensive category. Um, so it's not just that we're talking about buying houses and cars or ideal points and, you know, consumer packaged goods or not. I think in general, consumer packaged goods probably have a few, a lower percentage of ideal point customers than some other categories. But I'm glad you gave that example of mustard because immediately, um, you know, I, I think of these, to your point, very expensive, high involvement categories and, and, and why your prototypical um, you know, example was buying a house, you know, and I also think of buying cars and major appliances and, and, and all these things, which, you know, we don't buy at, at frequent intervals. We need to get educated. We need to understand the market alternatives and things of that nature. But, but I mean, with few exceptions, um, like Epsom salt comes to mind, although I'm sure you've got your Epsom salt enthusiasts out there. I'm sure you do. Right. And so, um, so probably any brand, any category has a consumer that, that that has their enthusiasts. I mean, who knew that that there were people willing to risk their relationships for mustard? But um, exactly, <laughs> and so uh, certainly that that will apply elsewhere. So if nothing else, as marketers segment their their consumers, um, they're going to expect to find some proportion of of ideal point mind states. Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's great. this is exactly the the application, right? So my wife uh, bakes. This is a hobby of hers, and. She has very, very strong preferences about flour, which is a category I could not possibly care less about if you paid me. Um, but when I've gone to the grocery store and I've bought the wrong kind of flour, you know, there's been hell to pay. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, from a segmentation standpoint, like if you are the premium brand in the flour category, it's more likely that a higher portion of your target customer are ideal point customers because they know all the dimensions on which flour differs. Right. I assume there are some, um, and they care about that and they, right. Uh, so yeah, it's, if you're, if you're in a consumer packaged goods space, we can't just default to these, you know, easier ways of making decisions. We need to understand our customer. Um, and there are some that, that do care very much. Moving down the effort ladder, uh, market comparison is the next most effortful, Again, this typically involves doing some research. You kind of need to know what's out there in the marketplace. Uh, local comparisons is the next uh, most effortful. And here we're getting into a space where people don't care, uh, where people are less informed. So hmm. one of the, the secrets that underlies a lot of behavioral economics findings, particularly as relates to um, context effects, uh, and, and I, I apologize, context effects is a term of art, um, so when we talk about context effects, we're talking about uh, extremeness aversion, uh, asymmetric dominance, or, or, or um, decoy effects, uh, these things where people are comparing options next to each other. Hmm. A lot of those effects 
empirically break down when people have strong preferences. So if you're a researcher uh, like me, who's run a bunch of studies in this area, we know that. We all know that. We design our experiments to get around that, because if we don't, then, then the experiments don't work. They kind of fall apart. They get swamped by other things. Right. But this is important for you to know. Right? So if you were in a category where people have extremely high levels of brand loyalty, then effects like um, uh, you know, compromise effects or extreme subversion, those are going to be much less effective. Right? Yep, makes, makes sense. sense. Absolutely. Okay. So in terms of, of kind of effort, that, that local comparison is a relatively low effort strategy. And then the least effortful is image. Right? So this is where we're kind of relying on these very shallow signals to guide our, our decision making. So that's one way that you can start to use this as you're, as you're asking yourself, all right, my, my category, my, my offering, my customers, are they in this low effort or high effort state? Um, that'll help guide us into one of these, these four minds and tell us what, what's most likely to work. Very cool. Um, you know, when you started talking about ideal point and then you got to local comparison um, and, and probably because you anchored my thinking in buying a home, which I, mm -hmm. which I did recently, and it made me think of, you know, the real estate agent um, and what, what their strategy might be to sell yes. you a home. If they know that you very carefully, you know, sat down, worked out your list of these are the things I want in a house, these are the things I don't want a house, then, you know, you do your homework and you, and you bring people to only those houses. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, if they're, if they've only done that to, a, you know, a fair degree, then the realtor's strategy might be, all right, I'm going to bring them to three homes today. And the first two are, are going to be um, not quite, you know, hit all the, the major things yep. on their list. And the, and, but the third home is going to hit all the things on their list and that'll be the easy sell. Um, <laughs> So, exactly so even high it. ticket items, I suppose, could even fall into the local competition or local comparison uh, mind state. It, it's a fantastic example. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and you'll hear, hear about realtors who will do this, um, where they will essentially set up a context effect, right? They'll deliberately show houses that are super expensive so that the next one seems more reasonable or ones that are kind of less good so that when they show them one that's moderately good, it feels a lot better, promoting kind of a contrast effect. Those are, you know, whether they realize it or not, those are local comparison strategies. And at exactly like you said, they're not going to work on somebody who's in an ideal point mode. I know exactly what I look like. Now you're just wasting my time. Um, exactly. Whereas they will work very well for most shoppers who, as you say, don't buy lots of homes, only kind of know what they want. Um, you, know, you can also get uh, effects where maybe it is very, very important to me. But like, think about markets like... Um, you know, Seattle or Vancouver, uh, British Columbia or, you know, New York, where there might be so little available and so much time pressure to get it before it gets scooped up mm -hmm. that even if I have an ideal point, I'm kind of forced out of that into a local comparison where it's like, these are the six apartments that are available right now. Four of them are going to be gone by tomorrow. So, you know, if you want to make a decision, make a decision now. You know, that's going to force me into a local comparison or an image mindset, even if I care about it more objective. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So obviously marketers can use the four minds framework to segment their customers into a mind or, or minds uh, yep. based on their decision style. Um, and 
to your earlier point, um, you know, we, we possess all four mind types, right? And so we're going to use them selectively based on our situation. We might even shift between decision-making segments over time. Um, and so, you know, so it, it starts simple, but it can get a little bit, you know, complicated. Um, but, but at one point you say, in general, a, a customer will be more persuaded by messaging that is consistent with the decision-making mind they are using and that marketers will always be more successful when they can match, match the message with the mindset. So, so can you give an example where, you know, a marketer really did do their homework and or have a, a really good sense of the mind at which their consumers are operating, where they did a really good match between message and mind? Um, and, and maybe another example where, you know, they didn't do such a good job? I, I mean, so the, a lot of the examples where messaging and, and packaging and um, kind of uh, all of the, the messaging uh, communications medium that we have work well is it's because they're consistent with the way people are thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I phrase it sometimes is you want to communicate in the language of the decision. Right. So if people are deciding in a very shallow, simple, easy way and you, you hit them with a bunch of facts and figures and stats, you know, that's just washing over them. It's not where they're at mentally. So can you communicate in a way that's effective to them mentally? Right. Um, you know, I think that there are a number of, of image brands that have done this very successfully. Um, so one example, Walmart obviously has created this low price image for decades and decades, and it's very concretely rooted in the minds of consumers. It's interesting when you look at actual price values, um, Target is competitive. Uh, I, I don't want to say that they're lower, at least not consistently, although sometimes they are. Like you can do a Google News search for the prices at, at Target and Walmart and you will find it's kind of an evergreen story. Consistently there will be headlines year after year where some reporter will go, can you believe it? The, the hot Christmas toys this year are actually cheaper at Target than at Walmart. Or um, believe it or not, electronics are actually cheaper at Target than at Walmart. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's so surprising is because uh, Walmart has that image. People can compare prices. It's easier to compare prices now than it's ever been before. Mm -hmm. And yet, because uh, Walmart has established this image and they're dealing with customers who are largely making decisions in an image way, mm -hmm. that messaging is just very complete. That they, they don't bother. If I tell you, okay, your goal is to get this thing cheap, where are you going to shop? You're going to tell me Walmart. Right. Right. Because that's the mode that I'm in. If, if I say, okay, this is very, very important to you. You need to get the lowest price available. Well, then now you can be in more of an ideal point or a market comparison. You can go out and actually compare prices. And then Walmart's going to lose at least in those kind of domains. I, I don't want to disparage the good name of Walmart for low prices. I hope that's not what comes out of this. But the, the image that they have is stronger, actually, even than the empirical evidence. Uh, yes. Volvo's my other image example there. Yep. Volvo created such an amazing image around safety that if you ask people um, to name a safe car brand or if they want to buy a safe car, what are they going to buy? People will say Volvo. Um, Volvo hasn't made the safest cars on the market in, in decades at this point. Mm. It's, it's not, again, I don't want to disparage Volvo. Right. They make safe cars, but everybody makes safe cars now. Uh, I, I use this example in class. The Insurance Institute of Highway Safety publishes a list of five-star crash test ratings. And a couple of years ago, they had like, I don't know, like 120 cars on the list. 
and something like six of them were Volvos. So wow. everybody makes safe cars, but if you talk to somebody my age or older, mm-hmm. you ask them to name a safe car, then when they're thinking in this very image mode, they're going to make, they're going to, they're going to tell you Volvo because they don't need to think any further than that. Um, so th- those are examples I think that have worked, especially in this image space. Um, I'll give you a non-marketing example for uh, a case where I think it, it has worked poorly. Okay. Um, there's this public health push to get people to eat healthier and to lose weight. And if you look at the things that, uh, that have been done to try to promote that, it's almost universally failed. In fact, the problem has continued to get worse. So one of the things that was done was a uh, nutrition facts label on all packaged goods. Um, that came out, you know, 20 years or so ago and uh, did nothing. Right? Why not? It should have worked. The, the, the logic was sound. The idea is people make decisions, food decisions, by you know, trying to figure out some idea of, of how nutritious things should be. If we provide them more information with how nutritious things are, they're going to make better informed decisions. They'll be happier. Obesity rates got worse after these nutrition facts were labeled on. Mm. And, and my interpretation of that is that people um, were assumed to be in a market comparison mindset when making food decisions. That's what these policymakers assumed, that you're out there, you're comparing what's on the market, you know how many calories should be in an afternoon snack, here's that calorie information, you can make those comparisons. I think that often people are in an image mode when they're making uh, food choices. Let me give you an example of my favorite study on image mind. Um, this is by a guy named uh, Alexander Chernev at Northwestern and David Gall, who's at uh, University of Illinois in Chicago now. They found what they called the negative calorie illusion. They asked people to estimate how many calories were in a, a hamburger, a different group of people, how many calories are in a salad, side salad, and a third group of people, how many calories are in a, the hamburger and the salads, so like a meal consisting mm. of the hamburger and salad. People estimated fewer calories in the meal that consisted of the hamburger plus the salad than they did just the hamburger by itself. And the logic is people look at a hamburger and go, oh, that's unhealthy. So they're forming this image of the hamburger. Right. They look at the hamburger plus the salad. They're like, oh, that's moderately unhealthy. And moderately unhealthy meals, of course, have fewer calories than unhealthy meals. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, Chernev has, has replicated the same results for pricing. So if you bundle a high-priced image and a, or a high-priced item and a low-priced item together, people go, oh, well, that's a moderately high-priced bundle then. And they actually end up valuing it less than the high-priced item by itself. So, Isn't that interesting? Like there are these image approaches that we take. And if we're assuming that our customers or that the public – are making decisions in a certain way, then we can give them solutions that don't match the mindset and it won't help. It won't do any good. Isn't that interesting? And I wonder if um, just in that example, whether it's almost even inconsequential, the absolute price or value of the, of the, you know, the companion item that makes the bundled uh, offer, you know, seem, seem moderately expensive expensive versus very expensive. So for example, you know, you have, you have a, a car by itself or you have a car and a Mont Blanc pen. Um, yep. <laughs> right. And so the Mont Blanc pen, I mean, you know, it's kind of expensive by itself as a pen, but you know, relative to the car, it, it's 
you know, almost insignificant. Um, you know, I wonder if, if, yep. if that second item really has to be a high value uh, bundle by itself. Yeah, so the, the context that they found it in was where um, the two items were from different, what they call price quality tiers. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that context, it'd be interesting because Montblanc is, is obviously a high price, high quality for pens. Um, I don't know for sure whether you would still find the same effect for a pen plus a car. I anticipate you might. People might actually be willing to pay less for the car plus pen than they would for the car by itself using yeah. kind of some of the same logic. Okay, so let's, let's say you're a consumer goods marketer and you've identified the primary decision style of your consumer. So what would you do to target this mindset? Like, how would you know which tactics to use to appeal to your consumer's mind? So, you know, so for example, you mentioned various tactics in your paper, like mm -hmm. using um, a contrasting color on your package so it stands out from competitors' packaging on the shelf when targeting the local comparison mindset. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there such a menu of tactics available for marketers to refer to? Or, um, you know, I'm guessing not, but, but in absence of that, you know, what might you recommend? So it, it's, it's not a master menu that I can point you to, but part of our motivation was, um, and part of the reason this was an unusual paper um, for an academic like me to write, is because we're not developing new theory here. Mm -hmm. um, what we're doing is categorizing old theory. So, for instance, um, if you're in a local comparison mindset, then you, you know that people are going to be comparing items from within a menu or a store shelf or a website. And you can now draw on all the theory that speaks to that. So I don't have a master list I can point you to, but I can point you to the, the general kind of categories of theories. You can now go to, you know, pull your behavioral econ um, books off the shelf. You can go to websites that talk about um, contrast effects and framing effects. This is where they're going to be most effective. And so you can turn to those strategies that, that those researchers have proposed, right? So, um, you know, we know a lot about uh, prospect theory and loss aversion and diminishing marginal sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Those are most likely to work in um, a market comparison mind. So given that, what are the, the strategies that researchers suggest for shifting people's reference points around and yeah. for coping with loss aversion and for coping with diminishing marginal returns? Um, now that you've got kind of a category of theories to go for, you can go back to some of that source material and some of that secondary material that's been written about it. And that'll hopefully give you a, a, a better place to start. Very good. And so, um, there, so there, there's kind of an intuitive, you know, link between the, each of the four minds, um, you know, even just reading the basic description, uh, will, will guide you toward the types of effects that you're going to be interested in understanding better. Yeah. I mean, I hope it will. Right. So if you identify that, okay, we're in a local comparison mind, that's how we sell. Um, I mean, just knowing that intuitively should set you in a better place. So, that means that I need to stand out from this local set that I'm, I've got now got defined, right? Mm -hmm. I need to create a, an option. So for instance, it becomes very important now that it be easy. It, it becomes very important that I am superior on dimensions that are easy to compare within that set, right? So um, 
does that mean that I change my packaging to make the fact that I'm 99.99% pure, whereas my competitors are all only 99% pure? Um, yeah, in a local comparison, that matters a lot. If people are making a decision in one of these other modes, nobody's gonna know or care about that extra 0.99 because they're not comparing directly across packaging in the same way. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So, so knowing where your customer's at should hopefully point you to some good research that you can look to, but also give you a better intuition about what matters, right? If, it's, if people are in an image mode, you know that's where you need to meet them. And hitting them with, with stats and, and um, points of comparison, eh, what you needed to focus on is the image. Do I have a reputation for being great in this way? That'll matter more than stats saying I'm better this way. Right. People at Target must be tearing their hair out when they realize that they have lower prices than Walmart consistently in certain ways. <laughs> because they will never win that debate, right? Uh, when McDonald's comes out with a healthier food option, even if they can show it's objectively healthy, nobody's going to believe that McDonald's is making a healthy salad because people are making those food choices in an image mode and mm -hmm. McDonald's isn't healthy, right? So are you fighting against the mind of your customer? Right. Are you recognizing where they're at and trying to meet them where they're at? There are ways of persuading people in each of these four modes. Are you identifying what's going to be effective for where your customers are? Okay, so I'm a marketer and I'm listening to this and saying, I love this, um, I wanna start using this in my survey work you know, immediately. One of the things that I was looking for as I got to the end of the paper, or maybe was hoping for, um, was a, a line of questioning um, that would you know, very easily and efficiently allow me as a survey researcher to, to understand um, and proportion the decision uh, or the, or the, the minds of my target consumer, um, but didn't find one. So I was wondering what guidance you might give for those who, who want to understand their consumers um, and, and the kind of the, the primary and maybe secondary minds that are used in their, uh, their categories and brands. Um, how might they go about that? So we, we developed a questionnaire. Um, we didn't set this up beforehand, dear listener. Uh, Phil didn't know this, but we did. We, we, we uh, Uma and I created a, a 16 question hmm. survey. It's it's clunky. I'm not thrilled with it. Um, if you've got a website uh, associated with your podcast where I can I can give you and you can post stuff, I'll make it available to you. Okay. Um, the the idea is that we've got a bunch of yes no questions, some of which you can answer yourself, some of which you might need to put to your customers. But things like, for example, is this an important purchase for your customer? Uh, if it is then that puts you closer to an ideal point or a market point comparison. If it's not, then it, it's, it's less likely to be a local comparison or an image comparison. Is your customer experienced in this domain? Yes, again, we're pointing more towards ideal point and market comparison. Right. No, we're pointing more towards local and image. So we've got 16 questions that are like that. Um, I'll, I'll send those to you after we're done recording and you can do with them as would best serve your listeners. But I agree with you. And this is one of the directions that I'm hoping to still take this in is, is to try to make this kind of more, more useful in that domain. Because I agree that that's something that would be great for people to have their hands on. Terrific. Excellent. Well, th thank you for that. And I'm, and I'm glad I'm asked. All right. So, so, you know, I'm always curious when, when someone such as yourself 
puts themselves through what you did in order to come up with this award-winning paper. You know, through this all, what learning or discovery was most interesting to you? So as academics, you know, the ivory tower thing is real. Um, we, we focus very narrowly on a specific set of concerns and a specific approach to solving problems. Um, and we are incentivized to uh, not care about the specifics in, in some very important ways. Yeah. And so, like, I, Uma and I tried to make this as practical as possible. And then uh, I presented it at a couple of MSI conferences, and I've talked to various practitioners about it. And there's still a gulf between this most practical paper I have ever written and may ever write mm -hmm. and the practice in the real world. And so um, it's, it's not written as an academic paper. It's not written for academics. It's written for people who have real jobs and want to do real stuff. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, there's still ways to go. There's still lots of room for bridging that gap. Um, and, uh, that's what I, I kind of realized in the process of writing this. Uh, and as we continue to kind of refine the idea and, and push it forward and try to make it more useful, that'll be what I, I continue to kind of focus on. So uh, I love interacting with non-academics, especially about stuff like this, mm -hmm. just because I'm so blinded by my own perspective. Sometimes <laughs> it's great to get questions where my answer is, I have no idea because I'd never even considered that. Hmm. Well, speaking of, I never even considered that. I would not have considered the answer you just gave to the question I just asked. Um, and, and so that, that, that kind of takes me by surprise, but it's also, I, I can, you know, totally relate and understand to what you're saying. Um, you know, in, in working with academic partners in the past, um, you know, that, that reality exposes itself pretty quickly. Yep. Um, and, and can be, you know, probably frustrating for both of us. I, I think so. I mean, it's, it's one of these places where I feel like generally there's a lot of goodwill on both sides. Absolutely. Like I think that in business academics in particular, you know, we want to work. We want our ideas to matter. We want, um, you know, to, to improve business and to improve the lives of, of customers. Um, you know, there are a lot of practitioners who are, in fact, very interested in theory and, and wanting to apply the latest science. Uh all that goodwill aside, though, we, we often are speaking very different languages and um, have di very different sets of motivations, different timescales, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are very serious hurdles to overcome. Can they be? I certainly hope so. Yeah. Terrific. Well, you know, I'm sure listeners are going to want to explore this idea further. Are there books or other articles on this topic you might recommend, um, especially as it relates to how marketers might appeal to consumers in these minds? Um. There are lots of great uh, books that have been written. I've referenced several of them mm -hmm. with regard to specific domains within this. Yeah. So any book you pick up written by an economist um, is probably going to, to give you great information from the perspective of an idea point mind that tends to be where their theories generate. Uh, the behavioral economic stuff happens a lot in, in the local comparison and market comparison areas. Um, any theoretical work on branding will tend to fall in kind of the image areas. So I, I hope that this um, becomes a way of integrating 
interesting but sometimes conflicting information that you'll get from various experts in the field. Very good. So the, the paper, just to remind people, is called The Four Minds of the Customer, a Framework for Understanding and Applying the Science of Decision-Making. Um, Ryan, if people want to learn more about this research um, specifically, or if they're interested in checking out some of your other work, uh, what's the best way for folks to reach you? Do you have a, uh, a website or, or an email, Twitter account? Uh, or what do you prefer? I do. And in terms of the paper, um, I'm Marketing Science Institute, msi.org published in their working paper series. Um, so you can, you can find it there. Um, and it's, it's free. You should be able to download it without any problems. Yep. Uh, I, um, I have a website. You can uh, do a Google search for Ryan Hamilton and then just scroll through all the posts about the comedian, <laughs> uh, a non comedian guy with a beard. Uh, that's me. Uh, and you, yeah, you can find all of my, my papers on there, uh, and, and various thoughts that I have. Uh, I speak at, at conferences occasionally. I do. I do have the the podcast, the Intuitive Customer, um, where you can hear more of my dulcet tones opining on consumer psychology topics uh, every week. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this has been great. I I really enjoyed speaking with you. I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy um, this conversation and and highly encourage them to read the paper. Uh, it is free. It is available on Google um, and surprisingly readable. So. Um, <laughs> So thank you for that. Um, so, uh, you know, and congratulations again on, on the award-winning paper. Again, I know that's, uh, that's really an impressive accomplishment, um, you know, coming from MSI as the best paper award. So, uh, so congratulations to you and Uma for that. Thank you so much. And this, this was great. I enjoyed this immensely. Terrific. And I look forward to listening to your podcast as well. Thanks. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.